I'm Afshin Ratatsi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. Within the past few weeks, the Middle East has witnessed a flurry of major diplomatic moves by Saudi Arabia. Riyadh's breakthrough China-mediated deal restored diplomatic relations with Iran. That was quickly followed with a normalization of ties with Syria, culminating in Syrian President Bashar al-Assad attending his first Arab League summit since 2010 in Libya. Joining me here in the studio to discuss Saudi Arabia's thriving diplomacy is Faisal Abbas, the editor-in-chief of the Riyadh-based Arab News and member of the editorial board of Al Arabiya News Channel. Thank you so much, Faisal, for uh, uh, coming on. Obviously, uh, the most important story in NATO nation media is the G7 in Hiroshima. But uh, I think uh, certainly in this region and arguably in the whole global south, it was the Arab League, Arab League summit in, uh, in Jeddah. Uh, how important was that summit? The US appeared to condemn it for allowing uh, Syria to uh, rejoin and attend. Oh, I agree with you perfectly uh, about the importance of, of the summit. And what was more important wasn't the actual attendance of Bashar al-Assad. But many people are not seeing the backstory here. Uh, the backstory is there was an Arab summit with Arab leaders who have distinctly different points of view about the return of uh, Bashar al-Assad to the Arab League. You know, if you, you have, for example, on one end the United Arab Emirates, and you have on the other end uh, Qatar, who is strictly opposed, who was strictly opposed. But the indicator here is, uh, or what is important, is uh, the Arab League, uh, given the new dynamic leadership in the region, has found a way to create a consensus. Uh, and this is a very promising uh, signal for the future of the Arab League uh, itself. Think of all the kind of unsolved, unresolved conflicts uh, and issues that, uh, that we've had. Uh, with regards to uh, your comment about the US not being very happy uh, about Assad's uh, return, I fully understand America has its own uh, interest that it needs to protect uh, in, in very Syria. Very diplomatic there. <laughs> no, no, no. Some uh, people would say it's of no, no business for the No, United I mean, States, they, they do have interests and they have security interests that they need to, to protect. But uh, we also need to take this in context, which is very important. Uh, this isn't uh, uh, making up with, with Assad per se. Um, what has been communicated since this story started leaking and, 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 and prevailing is that this is being done to create better conditions for the Syrian people. As you know very well, Afshin, insanity is trying to do the same thing and expecting a different result. Now, I can go on and on about, for example, if I want to retaliate, well, why, is, uh, why did Syria keep its seat at the uh, UN? I mean, you can start from there if you were a Western country. Um, but what is important here is this is a conditional return to the Arab uh, League. And the number one condition is creating a better environment for the return of Syrians, which is obviously very good for Syrians themselves. But if you think about the refugee crisis in, in Europe and around the world, if people stop and think about it, this is actually very good for the whole world. Yeah, but you can imagine being in Washington or London, uh, given that the United States occupies a third of Syria and the oil fields and is accused of stealing the oil. And there is Bashar al-Assad, who wants to claim parts of his country back. Um, there does seem to be some type of level of negotiation at some kind of level, even between Assad and Erdogan. Um, I don't know what's going to happen on that result uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, amidst all of that, uh, obviously, it's going to, they knew in Saudi Arabia that it was going to incur the wrath of Washington. Well, so many things uh, did incur the uh, wrath of, of, of Washington, but a lot of things that uh, 
Western countries, including the United States, have done, have upset Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that you know there is a break in the traditional alliance between the two countries, but there is very um, harsh differences of opinion. Uh, for example, um, a few days into the Biden administration, as civilian airports in Saudi Arabia were being deliberately targeted by by the Houthis, the, the Biden administration removed the Houthis from the terror list. Terrorist list, and you know, people watching the show need to think about it this way: How would you, as an American, feel if JFK was being bombed by a terrorist group in Canada or Mexico, and then an Arab country or a Muslim country uh, is very reluctant to call it a terrorist attack, or has the power to keep them on a terrorist list and remove them off a terrorist list? So, was that, do you think that, that was the Biden administration, Blinken, and so on, actually saying, Saudi Arabia, you play ball and do what we say in your region? or we don't care, we'll even work with, uh, we'll work with anyone to hurt you. Um, I, I, I honestly don't think it was that malicious. Uh, American officials that I spoke to or during this period uh, all say, agree that it was a miscalculation. For example, they say the withdrawal of the Patriot missiles, which, as you know, Afshin, is a defensive technology, not an offensive. Nobody was asking the Americans to take part uh, in the war. Some say they don't even work. Uh, well, that's a, that's a separate yes. discussion. But may I, just, have shares. May, may I just remind you that the Houthis' official slogan is not death to Saudi Arabia. Their official slogan is death to America. So we were waging um, a, a war uh, at the request of the legitimate government of uh, Yemen against a militia group that deliberately targets uh, civilians and civilian areas. By default, that should be called a, terrorism, uh, a terrorist. And this was the beginning of the kind of uh, uh, um, disagreements uh, on, on but many... But clearly countries. our Global South audience isn't going to be surprised given the uh, levels of information that's now there about US and British complicity with the extremist groups in Syria, fake um, chemical attacks and all sorts of things. I mean, I, I want to ask, you, the motto of Arab News is the voice of a changing region. I don't know when, was that there before you started in no, Arab News? No, that, that was my fingerprint uh, on, on the front page. But did it surprise even you? Because you uh, seem to be as if this was all in the pipeline. Uh, when uh, Going Underground started broadcasting from here, there was no deal with Iran, there was no deal with Syria, how quickly are things changing and how, uh, what sort of acceleration should we expect? So when we were in the brainstorming session to come up with that uh, tagline and we take, you know, I take full pride uh, with me and my team about it, uh, we knew things were changing. Uh, for example, at that time, it was the talk about women driving, the curbing the powers of the religious police, which is phenomenal. We just had, I honestly say, uh, nobody had any idea how uh, massive the changes uh, are going to be. When you talk about the uh, Beijing-brokered Saudi-Iran uh, deal, I don't think anybody in their wildest imagination would have imagined both that this would happen, but also that it would happen this quickly. Literally, President Xi came to Saudi Arabia in December. The deal was signed in, in March. Now, I know there were previous discussions before. We covered it here, Yes, actually. but that's a testimony for Chinese uh, efficiency and a testimony uh, and an indicator that when you get the right mediator, somebody who has has leverage over uh, uh, Iran, uh, and you play your cards right, uh, you can come up with a deal which, again, like I was saying about the, the Syria issue, uh, I cannot see how this harms Western interests. On the contrary, everybody has an interest in a stable Middle East. Everybody has an interest in safe passage of oil shipments through the Gulf, through the uh, Red Sea. Uh, everybody has an, an, an interest in you know, curbing uh, or uh, uh, tackling uh, terrorist uh, groups or eradicating them uh, completely. I've, I've been to enough 
conferences and seen enough Americans off the record explain that uh, there are many forces in NATO nations that believe the opposite to what you just said. Uh, they are interested in instability in the Middle East. They want to create instability in the Middle East because they fear a powerful Middle East and they fear desperately a united Arab world. No, I, I really don't know what to tell you, Afshin, because I've been at the receiving ends of, of as you probably guess, uh, being the outward-looking or English-language newspaper of, of the region. And my, my answer is like, look, when we're escalating, we get condemned. When we're de-escalating, we get condemned. So it's a, really a situation if you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Have we got to the stage now where, like, who cares? No, so, no, I think it's very Why clear. Why should you care? No, well, uh, I think, um, you know, the leadership has, in that famous Atlantic interview, the Crown Prince has said, like, we, we don't care what other people think because we believe we are doing the right thing. And, uh, you know, if you look at all of these decisions, they do not only serve uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, interests. They serve regional interests and international interests. But really, I believe it's not our problem if other people are failing to recognize the opportunity uh, here. I mean, why would a country like Saudi Arabia put all of these resources to help evacuate citizens from all over the world from, uh, from Sudan, you know, if we were an evil uh, country? We're not. You know, we are typically trying, uh, we're trying hard to help. We're trying hard to use our massive resources, which God has uh, given us, to help everybody uh, else. But, you know, if somebody fails to see the bigger picture, that is their problem. What, well, of course, the United States would say, I think many people would say that U.S. aid and the aid industry is used by some powers to, uh, to get uh, geopolitical leverage and has been in, in the past. I've watched interviews with you when you've been at international forum all over the world. Do you think it's a level of racism or the geopolitical fear that's at play when they seem to suggest, uh, for instance, women's rights? Or they will concentrate on some issue, and I know you were one of the first, you immediately changed your newsroom uh, to have uh, more women in the newsroom and so on. How, how do you react to uh, this? Uh, is it orientalist, the abuse that uh, Arab countries, not just Saudi Arabia, get in NATO nation media? Um, look, I think it's uh, a short answer would be all of the above. It's a bit of ignorance. It's a bit of orientalists. It's a little bit orientalism. It's a bit of agendas. But mostly I would like to quote Winston Churchill, who said, you know, the Americans will do the right thing after they've tried everything else. The number of meetings uh, or briefings that I've been, um, you know, attending or seen or heard of, and the amount of advice that has been given to Washington, uh, back from the Barack Obama days, um, you know, we told them, you know, you cannot appease uh, a monster. The Iran nuclear uh, threat is a clear and present danger, but it's not the only danger. When you know, inject cash into that regime, you're instigating uh, other uh, malign uh, activities. And what was the response of, uh, of the Houthis, who, as you know, are supported by Iran? They attacked the U.S. Navy three times in the last four months of Barack uh, Obama. And the U.S. Navy, which I'm sure was uh, very humiliating for many of the generals and many of the uh, uh, military men and women in service, they did not respond because the administration at the time did not want anything to uh, interfere with the Iran. Okay, we don't want to sound like a Donald Trump broadcast, uh, <laughs> because that is what Donald Trump says all the time. Um, what about the shadow of Iraq? Because uh, in Britain, in, uh, in the United States, those policymakers who supported the uh, destruction of Iraq 
they, they're well in with the political firmament, whether it be Hillary Clinton or advisors to uh, the people involved in the George uh, Bush uh, Jr., George W. Bush uh, Jr. Uh, administration. What is the shadow of Iraq? Because uh, in NATO nations, they've kind of forgotten it. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, and I just want to tie this with the last answer that I, I've given. Iraq was another example where we desperately tried to advise the U.S. not to do it. Uh, in, in, in 2003, and people who covered the war remember what the position of Saudi Arabia. Um, the leadership at the time saw this coming, saw the mismanagement. There was no question the U.S. was going to win the war. But how are you going to manage day, day two? And we were proven uh, right. When, speaking, we spoke about Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian regime. When President Obama said that uh, using chemical weapons is a red line and then did that really uh, awkward U-turn, we gave them advice. That there were no chemical weapons used by the Bashar al-Assad uh Administration. Well, I have my difference of an opinion about that. But what, what I do know is after, and I know you, I, I note that you don't want this to sound like a President Trump uh, interview, but what <laughs> I do know. news backing Trump. But, 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 but what I do know is when Trump striked against Assad, there were no reports, whether people choose to believe them or not, uh, there were no further reports about using chemical weapons. Face I'll stop you there. More from the editor-in-chief of Arab News and editorial board member of Al Arabiya News Channel after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the editor-in-chief of Arab News, Faisal Abbas. The reason I said the shadow of Iraq, because we had the ex-advisor to uh, Zelensky's commander-in-chief on this show just the other day, and uh, he's a U.S. veteran speaking to me from West Point. He said the Iraq war was worth it, and they're going to use this kind of Iraq war strategy against Russia and Ukraine. How widely held is the view in the world away from uh, 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 in the air in the Middle East that believes Iraq was worth it, that, they, uh, uh, th that if you complain about the casualties and the tens of millions killed, wounded, or displaced by all those wars, uh, it's kind of going through old history or not recognizing American supremacy and how Amer the United States uh, did the right thing. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, polls and data-driven journalism, So, and I would hate to speak on behalf of the Arab street. That's a very complicated <laughs> question. But um, uh, what I can safely say is people judge by the outcome. Uh, and what is the outcome? Did Iraq become better or worse? Uh, Iraq became far worse. And I have complete uh, understanding and I have my own uh, criticisms and issues about the Saddam Hussein regime. This is not a criticism of the Saddam Hussein I think regime. all of us would be critical of yeah. these. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hardly not to, right? <laughs> but what I'm talking about is the mismanagement of the day two of, of, uh, of the Iraq, which has led to, you can arguably say, the creation of Daesh, uh, et cetera, uh, et cetera. So uh, people uh, judge by the outcome and the outcome in this instance wasn't positive. Now, uh, to the uh, kinds of propaganda against the Arab world, how, uh, how do you counter uh, the uh, NATO nation propaganda against the Arab world in, in general, not just from your appearances, presumably at conferences and international fora? How do journalists who work for you at Arab News do that? Because presumably in the newsroom, they can see where narratives are being constructed and uh, 
propagated for various reasons? I mean, look, uh, we are not without our shortcomings and not without our own uh, mistakes. Uh, we work hard to tell, reflect the most accurate uh, story we, we, we can. There has been instances where we've corrected stories uh, uh, and, you know, challenged newspapers like the New York Times, and we were proven uh, right. Um, um, so, it, you know, not every story that is published uh, is wrong or uh, inaccurate, uh, but... But I mean I, you counteracting the kind of propaganda yeah, that well, you might find in the U.S. So, so we do, uh, you know, we're very cautious that we are not the Ministry of uh, Media of, of Saudi Arabia. We're a newspaper and, you know, there are limits to what we can and, and we cannot do. Um, I'm on the record uh, saying this on a number of occasions is we as a country as a whole need to do a better job in telling the amazing uh, progress and I, I do honestly think and I know people watching this interview will expect me to say this here's a journalist from Saudi Arabia he's of course going to kind of uh, blow your uh, blow his own horn uh, and say nice things but the the the, the sheer amounts of uh, of um, the sheer magnitude of change that has happened over the past six years is unbelievable um, you know if I were to go back six years and a half when I started doing and I wouldn't ask again not only would I do this job again I would do actually pay for it because it is remarkable to be there when women started driving, when cinemas uh, reopened, when for the first time in at least the last 40 years, the religious police were, uh, uh, you know, the powers of the religious police were finally put in, in check and you don't see them anymore. And I don't think people get, we give enough credit for that single yeah, change. I understand that. And that information, some of it is even coming out into NATO nation media. But do you think that uh, the uh, NATO nations who have a desire to control Saudi Arabia, not only oil production in Saudi Arabia, but uh, arguably control elements uh, geopolitically and which views Saudi Arabia takes because it's a superpower of this region. Do you think they'll just go, yeah, things are better? What, I mean, what, what tricks up their sleeve next to try and destroy, and you must have witnessed it, as they try and destroy Saudi Arabia's reputation around the world, the media, I know they always talk about you being uh, state controlled, Arguably, uh, I think you probably can see how state-controlled NATO nation media is. What, what are you expecting the latest slurs and uh, defamation against Saudi Arabia to be? Um, uh, look, um, if there is agenda-driven media in the West, you can't really blame them because they're agenda-driven. What you really surprises me sometimes is how naive some of the people receiving uh, the media uh, is. It's not really that hard to fact check uh, these days. It's not really hard to find another source and, and compare uh, compare notes and see uh, what what is actually happening. Uh, you know, if I want to go and another step, it's not hard now that over 50 countries can come without a visa to, to Saudi Arabia. It's not hard to come and check for yourselves. And there's been an inflow of a lot of journalists from, you know, all the way from Tokyo to Toronto coming to Saudi Arabia uh, to find, and you know, I, you know, with a few exceptions, I cannot think of one person who didn't leave with a positive impression, not because we're putting on a show or propaganda, but because the, 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 the misconception is so grave uh, uh, outside. And I get it. We've been a closed country for a very long time. Uh, we've done wrong things for a very uh, long time. But I just do think the audience needs to approach this with, a, with an open mind. And, you know, if there is an agenda-driven journalism, there's a lot of ways they can fact-check. Do you think you're increasingly going to look at double standards as the NATO nation media criticizes Saudi Arabia? I know you're covering of Julian Assange in the Arab News. I've noticed that. The kinds of... Uh, we're now at a stage where Arab media is beginning to realize uh, 
that uh, the kind of uh, colonial mentality of the great uh, West and the ideas of freedom are not quite as they were. As Julian Assange, obviously the most famous journalist in the world, is in jail in London. Um, look, not we're gonna, it's not like we're going to start. We've already started, and I'll give you a very quick example. Um, around two years ago, uh, the Houthis burnt 40 Ethiopian refugees alive. And, you know, this was coming off the heels of the global Black Lives Matter uh, movement. I saw the news. I did not see it on any international, uh, well, most international media outlets didn't uh, cover it. Uh, what I expected is, you know, if the international media, and I'm here to say all lives matter, every life, innocent life lost is a life too many. But if you're going to do all of that media coverage for Floyd, uh, may he rest in peace, well, then I expect 40 more uh, 40 much as much coverage for the 40 poor Ethiopian refugees who were burnt alive by, by the Houthis. You know what we did? We started contacting newspapers in Britain and the UK one by one and sending them email and footage and say, are you going to cover it? Only one of them uh, uh, replied. Uh, the main Black Lives Matter movement in America didn't reply. There was a splinter organization of it that came and shamed them for not uh, doing that. And, you know, okay, well, they, obviously the Houthis would deny that that happened. I think I, I remember in that, uh, in that case. But uh, it's not just a matter of ignoring your letters. Uh, Al Arabiya, of, of which you're a member on the editorial board, like Fox News, like RT, like I don't know how many other television stations are not even bothering to get their Ofcom government, UK government censor license. Why, why would that uh, be? Uh, does, uh, do you not care about being broadcast in Britain free to air? Uh, I'm sure if you ask the management of Al Arabiya, they will give you a more up-to-date uh, answer uh, on, on that. Um, but symptomatic of press freedom? Um, well, look, I mean, I've been asked this question in the UK, and, you know, it's very easy to come with kind of a, a stiff upper lip and accuse us of all sorts of things. But, you know, we are what we are. We don't have a First Amendment uh, in, in, in the Arab world. We have to work in very tough conditions. No, I'm talking about no, no, but, but let me, the lack of freedom no, in no, NATO. No, I mean, I'm, but I'm getting to that point. So we don't have it. So by default, that means when we do something courageous, when we do something professional, we should be applauded, not the other way around. There's nothing special about the New York Times or the Washington Post doing what they're supposed to be doing, given that their legal framework protects them uh, to do it. But as you mentioned, who's perfect? You know, um, I was on a BBC radio uh, interview and saying, you know, you're you're arresting people uh, for protesting or tweeting. And I say, did you not watch the King Charles coronation? You know, uh, and the first time, we you know, when people were being arrested literally for having blank uh, posters. So, um, you know, I think everybody needs to have a deep look inside before uh, throwing bricks at other people. Uh, you mentioned the Julian Assange uh, issue. I still remember when, uh, you know, uh, British security forces raided the offices of The Guardian and forced journalists to destroy laptops and computers and hard disks. You know, that is only less than 10 years uh, old. So nobody's perfect here. You'd expect uh, at any time the Saudi security forces coming into the Arab news and uh, axing a laptop in front of you? You know, you will be, you'll be like surprised. Like they did at the Guardian, the British? I've seen, you'll be surprised that I'm saying this, but I am more comfortable working as a journalist in Saudi Arabia, um, as, and I know how this sounds, but I'm more comfortable working as a journalist in Saudi Arabia than having to deal with companies like Carter Rock in, uh, in the UK, which is the libel capital uh, of the world. Clearly, Peter Carter Rock would uh, deny what you're saying. You know how litigious he is. We want to keep going underground. I mean, and, you know, this is not encouraging. He does uh, nothing wrong. <laughs> it's not, a, 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 you know, encouraging the abuse or going after people unfairly. But, you know, the laws in the UK are pretty draconian. 
So uh, I feel much more comfortable working in Saudi Arabia, knowing that the way we're headed with the Vision 2030, it has to happen that we're going to have more transparency because this is a whole vision that is based on accountability, transparency, setting targets for uh, and KPIs for ministers and government uh, officials. We're not there yet, but I'm sure we're going to get there one what day. What happens, though, and I've got to say I feel more comfortable here, clearly, because I moved from London <laughs> over here, and we had the United Nations Special Rapporteur talk about torture of Julian Assange in, in London. But what about the fact that a lot of Arab journalists in this region may have been educated at American universities and British universities and, and in, inherit some of these Orientalist ideas, not fully understanding that uh, the Arab world is uh, a power to be reckoned with now, along with BRICS? Uh, look, um, my, my thing is I always say everybody, and I mean everybody, needs a system update on what the Arab world is, particularly the GCC has become. Um, there, there are many outdated, uh, unfortunately, sometimes even by our own people who maybe have spent a long time uh, abroad. But this is, as the tagline of our newspaper says, this is a changing uh, region. It has changed dramatically in the last few years. Um, with regards to, you know, the you know, Western media... I'm and talking about elite class Arabs who don't realize that actually you don't need to kowtow to Western foreign policy. Um, look, um, we will do what is in our uh, interest, I think, is the message. And we will make sure that our interest doesn't harm your interest, which I think is a, is a fair uh, game. But uh, if anybody, I, I believe that if anybody is expecting a free ride, that doesn't happen anymore. And BRICS, uh, did that surprise you that Saudi Arabia was going to, uh, Russia wants it to join uh, BRICS? you expect Saudi Arabia to be part of BRICS? I mean, I mean, it's a very complicated negotiations. What I do know is there's a Friends of BRICS meeting happening in South Africa beginning uh, of June, where Saudi Arabia uh, is invited. Um, uh, I know there are serious talks to invite the leadership to come to the summit uh, in August. Uh, how that materializes, uh, I don't know, and it's too early to judge. But, um, you know, the kingdom has signaled in recent years that it wants to consider alliances with all sorts of uh, blocks uh, in the world in a way that serves its own interest, regional interest and international uh, interest. Um, there is no reason why we shouldn't talk to um, you know, the BRICS group and see if we can align our interests with theirs. Well, as the Americans say, you, you know, like China, all it's American innovation. There's nothing the Arab world, nothing the Global South ever do that's full of uh, innovation and the kind of know-how that the Americans and the Western Europeans can. Just tell me what you thought about the astronauts. Well, I, I, I'm obviously saying it ironically. Tell me about the, what you thought with the I astronauts think, this week. I think you might have to explain it because internationally maybe it's not known. Well, as you know, Saudi Arabia was the first Arab country to send an Arab Muslim to space. This was in 1985. It was printed. Uh, Sultan bin Salman and now uh, there's a whole program uh, the Saudi space program um, and we uh, want to catch up with our uh, brothers here in the UAE another signal that the whole region uh, is uh, is rising so a few days ago two astronauts the first ever female uh, Saudi astronaut went to the international uh, space Rayana station Banawi? yes uh, Rayana Rayana and from the UAE Sultan uh, Al yeah, yeah, but he was there. Uh, he was there a few months. I think uh, that's going to scare the Americans a lot, I, frankly. I don't think it should scare anybody. They're going <laughs> there to do research, but it's a signal that you know we want to be part of it. And you know, we, this was launched from the U.S. We also just signed uh, with Elon Musk. Uh, yes, 
And we also just signed as a country $37 billion of Boeing planes, around 121, to uh, supply the new airline that we are building for, uh, for Riyadh. So again, people you know, see one part of the story, but don't see the other part of the story. If we were so anti-American or want to break up with the America, why would we launch? There are other countries that we can launch uh, to space from, and there are other countries that, can, that make equally good uh, airplanes. So um, I think there is this view to try to simplify things and look at it from one perspective, but not look at the whole story. Faisal, thank you. You have to come on and update us as this fast-changing uh, region continues. That's it for the show. We'll be back on Monday with the former Goldman Sachs economist who coined the acronym BRIC, Lord Jim O'Neill, to talk about the rise of BRICS and its challenge to the G7. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Monday. <laughs>